Hebrews chapter 10. We are continuing in our series in Hebrews. And this morning we have the great privilege of hearing about not only the truth of God's Word, but how are we to live in response to the truths that we've been hearing over, over the last many weeks, the first nine chapters, ten chapters of Hebrews. How are we to live in response to the truth of God's Word? So let's turn your Bibles, Hebrews ten nineteen. This is God's Word. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. And let us, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is meant to have an effect on us. Your word is meant to affect how we think, how we feel, and how we act. Father, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would open up our eyes to see those areas where we need to respond to you, that you would give us faith to approach you, to draw near, to do the things that you are calling us to do in this text. Father, I pray that we would be able to be a people who encourage one another, who stir one another up to love you more and live for you. Father, I pray that you would give me grace as I speak, and I pray for grace for all those who hear. We need you. Thank you, God, that you desire to meet us. That you love us. That you love your people. And that, Lord, you answer prayers. So with this confidence we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The author of Hebrews, he has spent the bulk of the letter of Hebrews laying out the truths of who Jesus is and, and what Jesus came to do. Of the fact that Jesus is better than the law. He's better than the prophets. He's better than Moses. He's... He's better than angels. He's been laying out the truth of the fact that Jesus is our great high priest. He's better than the whole sacrificial system. And he gives us a better access to God. He's been laying out all these truths just hitting us time after time after time in Hebrews. Reinforcing the, really the greatest truths of the Christian faith. Who Jesus is and, and what he's done. And now, at this point in the letter, it really represents a significant shift. Because he's moving from pummeling at us with truth. He's saying, now, now you have a solid foundation. You, you have a sure and a deep foundation laid. Now, you need to do something with the truth that you have. You need, you need to respond in light of the truth. You need to act in response to the truth that you've received. And so he's encouraging to the reader to apply these significant foundational truths in a very real way. You see, truth's not meant to be something that just informs us. 
if I told you, and maybe you were in financial straits, maybe some of you really are in financial straits this morning, and, and I told you, by the way, um, each one of you here has a million dollars coming to you. All you need to do is you need to go down to the courthouse and go and pick it up. There would be an assumption that you're going to go do that, wouldn't there? I would assume that you're going to respond to... Now, that's not true, by the way. That's, that's not truth. <laughs> if, if that was true, there would be an assumption that you would actually respond to that truth, that you would do something with it, and that you would act on it, that you would act in response. You would, you would have faith, if you will, and... And do something. You see, the author of Hebrews, he's expecting us to respond similarly. God expects us to do something with the truth that we hear. He, he doesn't want us to just be hearers of the word. He wants us to be doers of the word. He doesn't want us to sit every Sunday or read your Bible every morning and just say, wow, that was really good. And then go and be no different. God wants us to be different in response. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing from here, really through the latter part of the, of the letter of Hebrews, is he is saying... Now, now, in light of what you know, in, in light of who Jesus is, in light of what Jesus has done, I want you to respond. And, and he gives three different ways to respond here. And, and the main idea, really, of the text is because of Jesus, because of Jesus, we must draw near. Because of Jesus, we must draw near. That's the first response that we're encouraged in these verses. Because of Jesus, we must draw near. Not only must we draw near, though... We must hold fast. We must hold fast to the hope we have in Him. We must draw near. We must hope in Him. And, and we must encourage one another. Draw near. Hold fast to our hope in Him. And encourage one another. And we're going to unpack those three simple points. And they're just really clear in the text this morning. Draw near to God. Hold fast to our hope. Encourage one another. And the first point that he's making, it's, it's in verses 19 to 22. And it's simply just draw near to God. That's the first thing we're expected to do in response to the truth. See, the truth of God's word is, is meant to create a response in you so that you come to him. You come to the only one who can help you. And you come to the one who will provide help to you. Who, who strengthens you. Who equips you. So we're to draw near to God. He gives us some solid reasons to draw near to the very holy presence of God. And in verses 19 and 20 and 21, he gives the reasons why the reader can draw near and they apply directly to us today, just like they did to the first readers of the book of Hebrews. You see, the Hebrews, they would have been aware of the fearful, the holy, the awesome presence of God. If you remember way back in Genesis, we went through as a church, you saw how great God is in creation. He's the one who spoke. And all of creation was. He said, let there be light. And there was light. Then we saw that what God purposed happened. And then in Hebrews, we've seen so far that God is a holy God. who's to be approached on His terms. Here's the good news. We can draw near to God. That's really an amazing truth. You see, the, the Israelites, the people... God's people of old, of the Old Testament, they could not come into God's presence. They couldn't come directly to God. They couldn't relate to Him on their own. And there was this expectation that if they tried, they would probably be killed. If, if Aaron's sons came and they offered the wrong kind of worship in their own way without being asked, and God killed them, how much more would, would He have vengeance on those who just came to God on, in their own way. 
And so the Hebrews would have been very, very aware of, God's a holy God. You don't just come to him on your own. We're defiled. We need to be cleaned. Hebrews is the first nine chapters all about how Jesus makes us clean. And so what he's saying this morning is that we can draw near to the holy presence of God. It says, therefore, brothers, look in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. What a wonderful truth for us is that now we don't have to be afraid to come into God's presence. That truth is meant to create a response in our hearts that knowing that we've been made clean by the blood of Jesus, now we can come near to him. And he says, brothers, because it's addressed really to to all those who by God's saving grace are a part of the family of God. Those who've been adopted as children of God. And it says, since we have confidence, instead of we can have confidence. Did you notice that? Since we have confidence. That's an interesting way of putting it. He's, He's assuming that we have confidence. And why is he assuming we have confidence? Because he's assuming that the readers of Hebrews have gotten the truth. Have gotten the significance of what they've heard. And so he's saying, since you do, since you do have confidence, draw near. Since you do have confidence, all those who've been made born again have confidence to enter the holy places through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not based on how you feel. It's something you already possess. It's not something you possess because it's something you've done. It's something you possess because of the blood of Jesus It's not based on anything that we earn or purchase. It's not based on any kind of rites that we do of passage. It's not based on anything that we achieve or even through any of our own efforts. You see, we don't have confidence to draw near because of our merit. And that's good because when I don't have merit, I don't feel like I can draw near. And that was the case not just for me. It's the case for the Hebrews of old. It's the case for for all of us. When When we have those times where... We're aware that we've sinned against God. We've not lived up to His righteous requirements of His law. We don't feel like we can draw near. And what the author of Hebrews is telling us is, no, since we have confidence. We have a confidence. And that confidence, it doesn't lie in what we think and what we feel. That confidence lies in an objective work that's already been accomplished. If, if you are a believer in Christ, here's the wonderful thing that you're meant to respond to. You have free access you have free access into the presence of god so you can come with full permission fully authorized to come into god's presence when my kids need me or when they want me when somebody has one of their siblings have have done something to them and they're wanting to make an appeal to dad they're not stopping to think wait a minute am i allowed to come to dad right now they're like daddy hit me hit me they just come right away they're pretty bold about it they don't shy away from telling me what they need, what they want, what they, they need help. They don't shy away. They know that they can come to me because I'm their father. Because of the relationship that they have with me. They have a right, a free permission, and a standing invitation to come to me. And they, they don't hesitate to come. They, they, they already have that confidence. They don't second guess it. They don't think, now wait a minute. Um, can I come to dad with this or should I not come to dad with this? You know, my, my 18-month-old is not processing things like that. He has a a dependence, a confidence that in the middle of the night, like maybe last night, say at 4 o'clock, um, he, he was screaming. He had a nightmare or something. He was screaming uncontrollably and he has his hands up and he puts his blanket up and he, he basically means just get me, pick me up, help me. 
He's not thinking through, can I, can I yell for dad? Can I go to dad? Can dad, will dad pick me up? He's not wondering that. See, he's aware at a very early age that he has access to me. And what this scripture is meaning to say to us is that we have confidence. The question is whether we live in the good of that or not. Do you live in the good of the confidence that you have in Christ to draw near to God? We're meant to respond by drawing near to God because we have confidence in Jesus Christ. His sacrifice is meant to give us that same confidence, that same assurance that we can come freely and say, Dad, Father, Daddy, help me. We can draw near to His presence. And in verse 20 it tells us, we don't just come on our own, we come by a new and living way, it says. By a new and living way that He has opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. The author is giving us really vivid imagery here. If you remember, he's been telling us in the last few chapters about the tabernacle and how in the tabernacle there was this thick curtain. It obscured sight of God. It blocked entry to the things of God. It kept them from the presence of God. And now it says, hey, you don't have to think about entering in by an old way, by your sacrificial system or trying to do what's right or keep the law or keep the marriage of the law. Now we enter in through a new and living way. And Jesus has effectively drawn back the curtain of the tabernacle. And he says, here, come on in. By the way, here's God. Here's his presence. Come freely. And I've made a way. Come through the curtain. That's my flesh. I've made a way. And so he pulls back the curtain so you can behold God, so you can come near to him, so that you can be with God. The closest parallel that we have today, it's, I can think of as trying to pass through the gates of the White House without permission. It's, it'd be trying to, to leap the fence. And if you, if you thought, I'm going to go and I'm going to be where the president lives. I'm going to be in his quarters. Not just go into White House grounds. Not just go into the office, Oval Office. But I'm going to go up to where his family lives. You see, not, not many people are invited to where the president's quarters are. There might be hundreds of people who are invited into the White House. There might be uh, a smaller subset who are invited into the Oval Office. But there's very few who are invited into the quarters to where he lives. And so if you or I thought, you know what, that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to go right into his quarters. And so we leapt over that fence on Pennsylvania Avenue. I think we probably get maybe five or six steps before we had a few bullets in us. And maybe, maybe if we got further than that and we weren't armed, they would just take us down. But it would, be, it would be fearful to do that. I'm not encouraging you to do that. Please don't do that. You don't have free access. But if you were the president's children, you would. You would have free access. You would have unencumbered free access. The Secret Service, they would see you if you were the president's child. And they would say, yeah, oh, sure, yeah, come on in. And you wouldn't need to show your ID. They would know who you were. You would have free access to come into where the president lived because it's where you lived, where your dwelling place was too. You see, Jesus, in a similar way, he's giving us unencumbered, unhindered access to the presence of God with no fear of punishment. And he's drawn back the curtain and he stands there welcoming us saying, come on, come on into the curtain. Why, why are you standing out there? You know the truth, so why are you not taking advantage of it? You know the truth of what I've done for you. You know that I provided a way. You know that I've given you my blood as a sacrifice to make a way to atone for your sins. And yet you stand there not coming into my, in my Father's presence. 
it's, it's the truth of God's word. It's meant to function for us. So often when, when we sin or we do something wrong or when we're aware of our guilt, um, we have this, this kind of weird response. Okay, the only place we should go for help is to God, right? And yet when we've done something wrong, we feel like we can't or we shouldn't or we don't belong. The author of Hebrews is saying, no, you, that's not true. And because it's not true, you need to respond. Don't just sit on the truth. Don't just say, oh, that's a good theological truth to believe. No, draw near to the presence of God. So verse 20, it's telling us the confidence we possess. It's, it's not an old or dead confidence. It's a new and living hope. It's not based on something that's passed away. It's not based on ritual whose time has come and gone. It's a sure foundation that we can stand upon. It's the new way inaugurated in the covenant that Jesus established. And he's saying it's not dead. Jesus, and why is it not a dead hope? It's a living hope because Jesus continues to live. He continues to provide that way. He continues to call us to come into the presence of God through Him. It's a new and it's a living hope. The way is not barred anymore. We can go through the curtain of His flesh to the Father. And then He gives us the second ground to draw near to the presence of God. And it says, since we have a great priest over the house of God. Look in verse 21. It says, since we have, we have a great priest. Over the house of God. Since, since that's the case, we can draw near. You see, Jesus is the high priest over the true house of God. The place where God truly dwells. And he's priest over all of God's people. He's, he's priest over God's household and his family. He is, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he is your priest. He provides the way for you to have access to God. He is the go-between. We need no other. And because of that... We can have confidence to draw near. You see, the, the truth of God's Word is not just meant to increase our knowledge. There's a danger in that, actually. If you're hearing God's Word Sunday after Sunday, if you're reading God's Word every morning, and you're just reading it and you're putting it away, you're doing nothing, it's very dangerous. Because it can make you proud. It can make you self-deceived. It can make you think because you've heard God's Word that you know it and that you do it. The problem is, knowing God's Word and doing it are not the same thing. And these verses are calling us really to respond, to live differently in light of these objective truths. And so the question for us is, are you living in light of these objective truths? How do you normally respond when trials come, when troubles come, when things get hard, when doubts come, when suffering comes, when pain comes, when hard things happen? Are these just facts? Or do you respond and draw near? You're called to draw near. God's lovingly calling to each and every one of you. Draw near to me. Because of what Jesus has done. We're meant to respond to the fact that we can enter into God's presence. And we're meant to respond by drawing near, it says, with a true heart. With a true heart in, in full assurance of faith. Look down at verse 22. It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean. Come with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. You see this drawing near to God, it includes every way that we can draw near to Him, both individually and corporately, in prayer, in worship, in your private Bible reading. In hearing biblical preaching, in the manner that we're drawn near, it says with a true heart. With a heart that says, God, I really, I really, really want you. God, I really want to know you. I really need your help. God, 
I know, I have faith, I trust you. I have confidence, God. Not in myself, but God in you. That's the kind of true heart response that we're supposed to have to God. That's how we're to draw near. Not with a self-sufficiency or arrogance, but God, I truly need you. And I come to you knowing that I depend on you or I die. And it says we can draw near with full assurance, with the most certain confidence. And we'll come sincerely, believing and trusting God. Remember earlier on in, in Hebrews, 2, he was, Hebrews 3, he was talking about having an evil, unbelieving heart. Well, now this is really the contrast to that. Don't come to God that way. Come to God with a true heart. A believing heart. A heart that trusts in Him. And we can have a true heart. A heart that's not false. Not deceitful. Not pretending. We can have a heart that's sincere because of the sacrifice of Jesus in our place. And what makes this confident drawing near possible? It's knowing, He says, knowing that our hearts have been made clean from evil desires. The reality is that each and every one of us still have remaining evil desires, don't we? We, we don't like to admit that. We don't want anybody else to see that. We don't want anyone else to, to see just how vile our desires really are because at times, we're like, whoa, we even freak ourselves out. Where did that come from? What was I thinking? And at those times, you can be tempted to condemnation and think, I must not be a Christian. I... I must not be able to draw near. He says, no, you can draw near with full assurance. Not because you don't have those thoughts. He says, no, but because your heart's been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. The language the author uses, he makes a connection between the work of Jesus and the fulfillment of the prophet of Ezekiel. And uh, prophecy of Ezekiel, you can look in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, 25. God is speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. And he says... I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your un- uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Boy, that's, a, that's a wonderful promise, isn't it? You see, I, I, most of us are aware that we are unclean. And everyone still has some remaining idolatry when we have desires. We don't get our way. We don't get those desires. They get elevated to the level of an idol and we don't get what we want and they're willing to sin to get it. Here's the wonderful promise that God made back thousands of years ago to the prophet Ezekiel. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. Isn't that good news? And he says, from all your idols I will cleanse you and I, I need that kind of cleansing. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. A heart that desires God. Really, this passage in Hebrews, it's, it's reflecting back on Ezekiel and it's, it's saying that we have the fulfillment of this passage now. God has sprinkled all those who come to Him through the blood of Jesus. He's sprinkled you clean. He's made you clean He's given you a new heart. He's cleansed you from your idolatry. He's given a new spirit to you. He's removed the heart of stone. Even if you feel like your heart's stony this morning, have faith. Come to God with a true heart saying, God, I, I don't even feel emotion for you anymore. But God, I, I know that you can give me this heart of flesh. That you've given me a heart of flesh. It doesn't depend on how I feel. I'm going to draw near to you. See, there's a problem is that we're 
sometimes overly aware, sometimes overly aware of our uncleanness. Studies have shown that when people have thought or said or done things that were unethical or immoral, that they don't know it, they don't realize it, but those people are eight times more likely to go and wash their hands or take a shower or do some kind of cleansing ritual because it's an inherent response. They know they need to get clean. And that's, that's the majority of people, not people who've been diagnosed with different mental illnesses. That's just those things gone amok. This desire for clean, to be cleansed from our impurity, our consciousness to be made clean. What the author of Hebrews is telling us is that we can have confidence because we've been made clean even when you don't feel like it. We can have full assurance we've been objectively clean in, in Jesus. And don't we need full assurance? Don't you need full assurance? Because I don't know about you, but I doubt at times. I don't feel like I have full assurance. And yet what he's saying is you can come into God's presence with full assurance. You've been made clean. You've been made clean. Here's the good news. We can have full assurance, not on our own good behavior. Not full assurance that we're never going to sin again. You will. Not full assurance that you're never going to fail. You're going to fail. Not full assurance you're going to have enough faith on your own. You won't. We can have full assurance of faith that Jesus has sprinkled our hearts with His blood. That He's made us clean so we don't have to have a guilty conscience. And then verse 23 tells us not only to draw near to God, but the second point really that the author is drawing our attention to is that we can hold fast to our hope. In fact, we must hold fast to our hope. It says in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. If you're reading that honestly, you're going to think, wait a minute, that's not possible. We'll hold fast to our confession of our hope without wavering? Here's how that's possible. The second part of that verse, for he who promised is faithful. For he who promised is faithful. When, when I was in military school, they brought us down to the, the parade field and then... Uh, we were marching around the field, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, these helicopters come in, these, these Blackhawks come in, and uh, about 100 feet above us, and then these guys in black jumpsuits jump out of the helicopters. And we're thinking, they're nuts. <laughs> they're, they're about 100 feet above the ground, and they're kind of coming in. You know, that's pretty low, because the treetops in Virginia are about 100 feet, so they're barely coming in over the treetops. And they come out of nowhere, we hear this loud noise, and then boom, they're right there. And these guys, they jump out of these helicopters, and they... And they rappel down. Um, and they, they make it because they have ropes. They have something to secure them. They're holding on. They come fast, so at first it kind of wigs you out because you don't know what's coming. And you're all just marching. And then you look up, and then there's these guys jumping out. And then I remember being amazed as I saw them. I was thinking, wow, they have a lot of confidence. <laughs> they have a lot of confidence because these, these helicopters were still moving, and they're jumping out. Well, the reason why they had confidence is because they were very sure of what they had. They had they had secure ropes to hold them, to anchor them into the little tie-downs inside of the helicopter. They were sure of their skill, their ability. They were confident, and they acted in response to what they knew, and they held on to that rope, and they trusted in the rope that they had, and they repelled down. Their rope was what kept them from losing their lives. Now, their hold on to the rope, too, really, was what kept them. But really, if, if they were just holding something and nothing was there... That wouldn't keep them alive. And if you were to do the same thing, if you were to go and jump out of a helicopter, I would encourage you, hold on. Hold on to the rope. Hold, 
hold fast when you're repelled because it's the thing that keeps your life. It's the thing that will keep you safe, that will keep you from falling. And we're to hold on to our hope in Jesus in that same way. We're to hold on to our hope securely in Jesus, knowing that it's our hope in Jesus. It's Jesus who keeps us safe. When the trials of life come, when troubles come, when things get perilous and fearful, hold on to the hope you have in Jesus. The whole book of Hebrews really is an encouragement to hang on, to, to stay, stay there, to keep seeing Jesus, keep hoping in His promises, to hang on to the promises of who He is and what He's done for us, and that will keep us through our lives. We're to hold on to Jesus in that way, confidently obeying, confidently facing danger and potential peril without wavering because we know we can trust the rope. We know we can, more specifically, trust the one we are hoping in. But there's a problem with that, isn't there? With that illustration. The problem is we're, we're frail. We're weak. We're humans. We continue to sin. We continue to be aware of difficulties in life. We have a tendency to waver. This time of year especially. It's the most wonderful time of the year, right? It's the most terrible time of the year too, in a sense. And that's because it's the time where we're all prone to reflect. Some of that reflection is a, is a good godly thing that's meant to turn us to hope in Him. A lot of that reflection is not. It's introspection. It's confidence in ourselves where we realize that we've been a failure yet another year. And so, oh my, I've got to change something. Well, that's a terrible thing to go through every year. And, and yet, to some degree... We're conditioned that way, to reflect on our lives as the new year passes and turns. We're tempted to waver, to be overly aware of ourselves, the areas where we failed, where we've not been good enough, where we didn't do the things we wanted to do. Don't you feel encouraged now? We're tempted to waver when we face things that are too hard for us. We're tempted to waver when things are hard because we forget that they're not too hard for God. And we assume because they're too hard for us, or they feel too hard for us, because they feel like it's too much for us, these circumstances, they seem unbearable, they seem like they're never going to end. We can't get through this, it's too much. Lord, I can't do it. What have we done? We've lost sight of our hope. You see, our hope is not that situations and circumstances will end. Our hope is not that they will change. Our hope is not for relief of suffering and pain. I hate to say that. If you're hoping in those things in this life, I cannot guarantee that. Jesus said, in this world, you have many troubles. But he says, take heart. How can we take heart? Knowing that we're not of this world and that he keeps us and he'll keep us faithful to the end no matter what. And the author of Hebrews is saying, when troubles hit, when persecution hits, when trials hit, hold on. Hold on to the objective hope that you have in Jesus. When life seems like it's too much, we assume it's too much for God. It's not. We waver. We can become hopeless when all of our hope in ourselves has become exhausted. One of the biggest causes for depression is when people feel like they no longer have hope. And the reason why most feel like they no longer have hope is because they've reached the end of their abilities. They, They may not be able to change circumstances seem too much it's beyond their ability and so for many of us and most of us i would say experience that at times that that subtle depression 
Because we, we, we've, we've put our confidence in ourselves and realized that we failed ourselves. And oh my goodness, if, if I can't do it, then nobody can. And, and you get bummed out and depressed. God's saying, no, don't do that. Don't fall in that trap. Don't waver. You can come into my presence without wavering, having confidence, because I'm faithful. Because I'm faithful. Not because you're faithful. All of us will be unfaithful at some point in time. Every person will fail you at some point in time. But see, God never fails. He is our faithful high priest. We can flee in a place where we don't waver because God is faithful. We can hold fast the confession of our hope. What he's telling us in these verses is not because we're faithful, but precisely because God is faithful. That's how we can hold fast to our confession. How we can hold fast to our hope. I want you to listen to the words of the psalmist in, in Psalm 121. You see, the psalms are a wonderful place to go when you are wavering, when you are doubting, when you're feeling like no one can relate to me, no one can identify with me, no one has troubles like me. Really? Go read the Psalms. He'll say, evil dogs were persecuting me. <laughs> People were threatening my life. Um, it's, at times you're thinking, really? Was it really that bad? David, really, come on, are you exaggerating things? Well, he wasn't. And why we have scriptures like that is so that we, we don't have to pretend that the Christian life is all happiness. That everything is easy. There is suffering. There is pain. We shouldn't deny that. We should face it head on and say there is pain. There is suffering. There are evil, bad things. But God is faithful. And that's the response that the authors of Psalms had. Look in Psalms 121.1. It says a song of a sense. What that means is a, a psalm where he's preaching to his own soul. He starts off despondent, despairing really feeling down, and then there's an ascent as he tells himself the truth of God, and then he has a response. Sound familiar? It's what the author of Hebrews is calling us to do. So he says, a song of ascent, Psalm 121.1. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Why is he doing that? Because his eyes are himself too much. All of our eyes are on ourselves too much. I lift up my eyes to the hills, and it's a figure of speech. I want you to go and look at the Appalachians. Your help is not coming from there. He says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Did you forget that? He made heaven and earth. Is anything too difficult for him? He says, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. It's not like God is aside sleeping somewhere. Whoa, wait a minute, I forgot. What situation were you in? I'm a little groggy now. Can you remind me? Oh, wait a minute. Huh? Okay. Oh, that's right. I forgot. I'm sorry. I was sleeping. No, what he's saying is, he's saying, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life even though you die. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. You see, God is a faithful God. He's the only certain help and hope that we have. He won't let your foot be moved. Even though it feels like that at times. He who keeps us, it says, He doesn't ever close His eyes to our trouble. He doesn't say, you know what? 
We're having some difficulties right now, but I'm a little worn out. And you know what? We'll get to that tomorrow. No, he says, he who, he who keeps you who neither slumbers nor sleeps. Sorry, I yawned there. Then I realized that there's this human response that the whole congregation was funny. Looking back at me, like 200 people just went, <gasps> response. <laughs> oh, my. Where was I? I'm sorry. He, it says he's our shade in our in the midst of the hot sun of the circumstances of life. And sometimes it feels like it is hot. The sun is beating down on us. It's too much for us. It's going to scorch us. And yet he's saying he's our shade. In the midst of those sun, hot circumstances. These aren't just pleasant words. We can see through the Psalms that all the various authors, they all experience problems and trials and troubles and pain and persecution and searing loss at times. Death and destruction. But there's a very practical way that they held fast to the confession of their hope. There's a very practical way that we too can hold fast the confession of our hope. It's by remembering that God's faithful. By remembering that God's faithful. And how do you do that? You remember what the Lord's done. You talk to each other about what the Lord's done as well. You see, David, he was keenly aware. Remember David, King David, back in the Old Testament? He was keenly aware. It says he's a man after God's own heart. Well, he's a man after God's own heart. He became a king. He had everything he ever desire he had God's blessings unlimited and yet he was still continuing to sin and so he was keenly aware of his sin at times like we are in Psalm 40 and draw your attention to Psalm 40 verse 12 we see a picture here a glimpse of in his difficulty David's calling out and the Lord's pleased to deliver him and it says David's heartfelt prayer in Psalm 40 he says for evils in verse 12 for evils have encompassed me beyond number you ever feel that way? You ever feel like evils have encompassed you beyond number? And then he says, my iniquities have overtaken me. I felt that way last week. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. They're more than the hairs on my head. My heart fails me. I'm like, how are you encouraged by this? Really? Tell me again, Matt. How am I supposed to be encouraged by this? He says, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. But... May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy. What's he doing? He's drawing near. He's remembering God's faithfulness. He's holding fast to the hope that he has. As for me, I'm poor and needy, like all of us. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. That's a picture of the response. That we're being called to in Hebrews. In the midst of times we're tempted to doubt, we're tempted to draw away from God. We're called to draw near, to hold fast, to not go away, to not be on our own. Don't, don't believe your own press. Draw near to God. Hold fast because He's faithful. People in Hebrews, they were tempted to lose heart. Remember that? They were tempted to give up, to go back to their old way of doing things, to go back to the law. They were tempted to go back to what they knew, what they were comfortable with, the sacrificial system. They were tempted to trust in keeping the law on their own. Just like we're tempted when we face struggles and trials and suffering. We're tempted to go back to what's comfortable, aren't we? We're tempted to say, you know what, I just want to do what's easy right now. And what's, what's easy may just be fitting in or giving up or whatever. We're tempted to do those things, to go back to the, the way of life we knew before. 
They were tempted in Hebrews to give up on the Christian life because it doesn't make things easy for you. You know, the Christian life doesn't make it easier on you. Did you know that? If you are a new Christian, I'm going to break the news to you now. Christian life doesn't make it easier, but it gives you a sure hope. It gives you a sure hope in God's faithfulness. And what the Hebrews were experiencing is that it made things more difficult. They, they no longer were fit. They no longer fit into the world around them. They, they didn't fit into their past. And they didn't fit into the world. They were in this uncomfortable place of not belonging. We're in that uncomfortable place of not belonging. We don't belong to the world around us. That's, this is not our home. We're here. This is not our home. We're in the world, but we're not of it. We don't fit in, really, with the world around us, in a sense. And we don't fit in with self-righteousness and trying to attain attain righteousness by our works, by the law, by, by looking good on the outside. And so at times we can be tempted to just conform, just go with what's easier, to give up on the pressures, the pressures around us, to turn to things that don't give us hope. But through the author of Hebrews, God is calling you to have hope in Him and what Jesus has done and respond to draw near, hold fast. See Jesus and have hope in His promises. What God's calling to you right now, He's saying, remember. Remember. God's saying, remember. Remember what I've done. Remember you can have confidence into the holy places now. Remember you can come into the very presence of the Almighty God who made heaven and earth. Remember that Jesus has opened up the curtain to you. Remember Jesus has sprinkled your evil conscience and made you clean. Remember, don't hold fast to yourself or what you see. Hold fast to the good confession, which you know is really true. Remember, not because you're faithful, but because you know you aren't. And precisely because God is faithful, draw near. Hold fast. One more psalm I'll share with you, and then we'll go into our third point. It says Psalm 86, 7. And in the day of my trouble, David, he's wrestling with troubles, and he says, The day of my trouble I call upon you, for you answer me. There's none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. That's what we're being called to here in Hebrews. We're called to walk in the truth of what we know. It says, Teach me a way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love. Here's how David had confidence to come like that. Great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. This is where I think at times you're like, wow, David, you had it pretty bad. Um, a band of ruthless men seek my life. And they do not set you before them, but you, O Lord, are merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And isn't kind to the Lord. That was really the emphasis in worship this morning. Not, you know, Matt or Aaron not knowing what we're going to emphasize this morning. Led by the Holy Spirit. God wants you to know He's a faithful God. And He wants you to come near and hold fast. And then He wants you to the third point we're going to look at. He wants you to encourage one another in response. He wants you to encourage one another in response. 
to, to combat self-focus and over-awareness of situations and circumstances and encourage one another. That's our third point. Encourage one another. Verse 24, he says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. The way that we spur each other on to love and good works and encourage each other, it's by considering how to do it. He says, Consider. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And you think about that. Consider is, is to perceive, is to observe, it's to, to understand. The thing we're called to consider is how can we stir each other up? Why? Because we need to, because we personally need, and because we know that the person across from us, just like us, even though they may have different way of dressing or talking, or it may come from the north, and they may come from the south, they may have a weird accent, they may have a different background, they may be poor, they may be rich, they may have a different skin color. We all need to be encouraged by God. And so we're called to stir each other up to love and good deeds and to consider how we do that. And what that means is it requires some thought. It requires some effort. It means we're going to have to think about the people around us. If you are part of this church, whether you are officially a member or not, but if you consider this church your home, I'm going to encourage you for a second. Look around. Just seriously, take a look around for a second. Look at all around. Look, look all the way back. Look all the way forward. If you're sitting in the back, look forward. Look around. It's okay. Great. Now, if you see somebody sleeping, that's okay. They're getting, they're getting rest in a different way. That's all right. Um, <laughs> I want you to look around because these are the people you're called to stir up. If you don't know them, get to know them. So you can consider how to stir them up. You can consider how am I being called to care for them, to love them, to encourage them. I need to get to know them so I can figure out what would encourage them, so I can figure out how they need to be stirred up. Because I know I need the same thing. I want them to get to know me. I want to be in each other's lives so we can know each other and have fellowship with each other. You're called to live in communion with each other so that you can do this. And it recalls, it calls us to consider. And then it calls us to stir up. That word means to incite. Now, you put, a bunch of you are thinking, hey, that's cool, I can do that. I can really irritate people. No, it's, at times, sure, that may be the response. We're not called to try to be irritating, though, okay? We're not called to be disagreeable for, being, you know, for the sake of disagreement. Some of you who like that, you need to stop it, okay? So, you, didn't, you, you're, you need encouragement to say, encourage each other. To actually speak encouraging words, not just taunting words. We're to consider, to stir up. I, maybe a silly illustration. I, I drink a, a fruit smoothie for breakfast most mornings. I'm getting old. Um, so I drink a fruit smoothie most mornings for breakfast. Sometimes I'll leave it sitting there for a while. And then it has this weird thing that happens is the, the juices kind of settle to the top and it kind of have these bands. And you really can't drink it because the bottom's like, it's so thick. And so you've got to kind of stir it up. You have to stir it up and, and to make it useful and so it doesn't settle. And... and and sometimes in the, in the Christian walk, we, we really can become just kind of blah and ineffective and, and not useful because we, we need to be stirred up. We need to be stirred up. We need, we need to be encouraged. We need somebody to come along and consider how they can stir us up. We may not even be aware of that. You may be the one who needs to be stirred up. You may be the one who needs to stir somebody else up. You may... You may be the one who God's calling to encourage. But if you deny yourself a relationship, if you deny yourself a fellowship, if you deny yourself meeting together in church on Sunday mornings in our small groups of the week, if you deny yourselves of those opportunities, 
you're, you're doing a couple things. One is you're denying yourself of the opportunity to be a minister of God's grace to somebody else. And you don't know who God might be calling you to minister to. But you're also denying yourself of the ability to be encouraged yourself. And you're making it very hard for others and for yourself to hold fast to the hope. We need to stir each other up to love and good works. And then he says, not neglecting, not neglecting to meet together is, is the habit of some. We need to be in communion with each other. We need to, to stir each other up. We need to be meeting together. We need to commit to those times. Listen, um, when I was leading care group regularly, uh, there'd be times as a care group leader even when I would come and I would say, you know what, I don't, I don't really feel like going to small group tonight. I may not encourage you. Um, some Sunday mornings, even as a pastor, you're like, I'm just tired. I'd rather, you know, okay, I, this is sinful. I'd rather just sleep in some Sunday mornings. I'm guessing you have the same thoughts. Some of you get to sleep in here. That's, um, I apologize. I'll try to be more interesting later. Uh, uh, deny those temptations to neglect meeting together. Because it could be those times. And what I've found most often is those times when I don't feel like it the most. What that really often is, is it's the enemy coming in and saying, You're too tired. Just stay home. Those people don't care about you anyway. They don't know you. They're losers. None of them are like you. They can't identify. You're unique. You have unique temptations. No one can relate. No one understands. And so you don't go. But those times when you have those feelings and you go to your small group and you have fellowship and you meet together, I think you're ama- you'll be amazed that God meets you in those times. Not, not every time. Sometimes you're like, yeah, that was a bust. But hold on. <laughs> and you know what? Maybe in those times, God's calling you to encourage somebody else and to not be so self-focused and saying, you know what? I need to be encouraged. Nobody's encouraging me. Hey, buddy, you, you probably need to stir up somebody else. To love and to good deeds. Now, I want to encourage you as a church. There, you actually excel at doing this already. Um, there are so many people, as I was thinking about our church, I just had all the more affection for you. There are so many people here loving one another and doing good works and stirring each other up by doing that, encouraging one another. And I want to encourage you to do all the more. Do all the more like you're doing now. There's people helping each other out in practical things, people caring for each other, giving to each other, serving each other. In um, the past week or two, I've, I've personally, my family's been personally affected. People have been helping us paint our house and, and fix some things up that we needed to have done and make repairs and move furniture around. And um, we're often served by young ladies who come and watch our children. And, and you know what the effect of all those things are? I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged and I want to be like that person who's just served me. Like, how are they doing that? Like, what possessed them? To want to serve me? What possessed them to care for me, to love me, to encourage me like that? And it, it stirs up my affections, not only for them, but for God. It stirs up my desires to, I want to be like that. I want to live for God more wholeheartedly, doesn't it? When someone loves you and serves you and cares for you, it makes you remember how good God is because you're seeing God's goodness mediated through people. You're seeing God's faithfulness mediated through His body. And that's the way it's meant to be. And that faithfulness and goodness and love and good works that's meant to inspire you to say, God, yes, that the truth of your word is meant to change me and I see how it's changed them. God, I want that too. Let me live in, in response. So that's why it says, don't neglect meeting together is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more. 
We need to meet regularly. And he says it strongly. They don't, don't stop it. Maybe you're thinking, I can just have my church on my own. I can listen to messages on my own. I don't need God's people. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. You need God's people for encouragement. You need God's people to hang on, to have hope. And he says it's, it's not meant to stop. Maybe you think, well, I've done that. Keep on all the more as you see the day drawing near. And for some of us as we're getting older, um, the day seems to be drawing nearer and nearer. Um, he says, as you see the day drawing near, continue to encourage all the more. Evaluate your speech. Evaluate your actions in the body. Let me encourage you. Do you primarily tease other people or do you encourage each other? Do you spur each other on to love and good works? Is, is your speech more sarcasm than encouragement? Is your speech building each other up? Are you encouraging each other to love and good deeds? Do we tear people down? Do we speak badly or criticize each other? Or do we, or do we spur each other on to godliness? Because we, knowing we all need help, we all need encouragement. Don't just show up on Sunday mornings or small groups, times of fellowship. Think about it. Consider. Put some thought into it ahead of time. How can I be an active part of this body? Because I know that I need to be stirred up and I want to do the same thing. I need inspiration to love God. I need inspiration to want to live for Him. And so I'm going to do the same to others. And in the best form of exhortation, it's based on Scripture. So in order to do this, you're going to need to do something else. Be in God's Word for the good of the body. Not just for yourself, but for the whole body here. You see, your private times are not really private times with God. They're corporate times. They affect your ability to encourage one another. Let me encourage you for the sake of those around you, for your own sake. Spend time in God's Word so you can exhort others with God's Word. Meet in small groups and encourage one another. If you're not a part of a small group, go and find a small group in our church and be a part of it and plug into it, even if they're weird, because frankly, all of our small groups are weird, okay? Um, we're weird. Um, we're some unique people. Everyone is unique in their own way. That's why we're all here. Meeting together, it's a means of God's grace to encourage each other. It's... We're meant to make a regular practice of it, to grow strong in the faith, to keep each other holding on to the hope that we have, remembering that God's faithful. You don't never know what's going on inside your brother or sister. They may be putting a good face on, but they may really be struggling with doubt, with fear, with anxiety. You are at times, aren't you? And you don't look like it. You don't tell anybody. And you're like, everything's fine. And you're going home thinking, I'm so lonely. Why? You've not had, you've not shared, you've not encouraged, you've not stirred each other up. We're called to, to not live like that. We're called to meet together in a significant way. We need to remind each other the work of Jesus and the source of our hope. Remind each other that's true in God's faithfulness. Our gathering here now, we'll close with this. It's 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 neat. It, it, and if we can go ahead and stand, I'll have the worship. Actually, no, one of the worship band comes. Twelve o'clock. We'll just go ahead and stand up anyway, though. <laughs> Stretch your feet for a moment. Our gathering here, it's not the only kind of gathering we're going to do on that final day. There's going to be a final day when He's going to call us all up. You, know, you may die and that's how He calls you or, or you may be going about your business and, and He calls you to be with Him. And you know what He's going to do? He's going to gather us together. 
He's going to gather us together. And, and He's going to gather us together to share in fellowship with Him and to see Him face to face. But until that day, if you look around at the people here, this gathering is meant to anticipate that. Where we can see God effectively as we remind each other of who God is and what God's done. So let's, let's for now commit to helping each other, stirring each other up and loving God to encourage each other in the face. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your scripture. Thank you that you have exhorted us and encouraged us. God, I pray that you would help us encourage each other all the more as we see the J drawing here. That we would thoughtfully consider how do we stir each other up to loving good works? How do we stir each other up to remember your faithfulness, to remember your deeds, to remember who you are and what you've done? How do we encourage each other to hold fast, Lord? And I pray, Father, that we would all individually respond and say, Lord, we want to draw near to you. Because you are our ever-present help in times of trouble. And you are a faithful God. In your name we pray. Amen.